Jeremiah chapter 29. It says, now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will find peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me. And find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine and the pestilence and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten. They are so bad and I will pursue them with the sword, with famine and with pestilence. And I will deliver them to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they have not heeded my word, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets rising up early and sending them. Neither would you heed, says the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of the captivity whom I have sent. 
from Jerusalem to Babylon. We're going to pause. Chapter 29 is a series of letters to the captives in Babylon. Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem and the letters will serve two broad purposes. One is to comfort and instruct those who are in captivity. The other is to condemn the false teachers, the false prophets, those who were claiming to hear from God and misinform the people concerning their captivity. Now, tucked away in the chapter is a blog from Babylon. There's a guy named Shemaiah, and he's going to send a note to Zephaniah, a priest living in Jerusalem, that God has appointed Zephaniah to replace the current high priest, Jehoiada. That's found in verses 25 and 26. And Zephaniah will instruct them to put anyone in chains who claims to be a prophet from God, who disagrees with him, particularly Jeremiah. So, the first letter to the exiles. And in the first portion of the letters to the exiles, Jeremiah has an overarching theme. And the overarching theme is, you're in trouble, you're in difficulty, and I need you to make the best of your circumstances. Look at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. At this time in the history of Judah and Jerusalem, the first wave of deportation has taken place. The cream of the crop of the people in Judah and Jerusalem have been taken away captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. Anyone who could do anything. Those people with a special skill set. Jeremiah manages to send a letter of encouragement to the captives who have been carted off. Now remember, the captives have left Jerusalem and Judah with nothing but what they could carry on their backs. If we had a modern picture of what it might be like, even though the modern picture, you can take a lot more stuff with you. Imagine you don't believe that Hurricane Katrina is that big of a deal. You are reasonably certain that you're going to come back to your house. So you just stick in your car, whatever you think that you're going to need for a couple of days until the storm blows over and you're going to get to go back. And then you discover that your house is under 16 feet of water and that it's fundamentally destroyed, and whatever you used to have, you no longer have. And so it would seem that Jeremiah is writing this letter after the first deportation. And so for those of you who are following closely along in the text, it's about 597 B.C. There's going to be another catastrophe that is going to wipe out Jerusalem in its entirety. But at this point, there is still the fabric, if you will, of Jerusalem that is left. This happened, it says in verse 2, after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> the craftsmen, the smiths have departed from Jerusalem. And note what it says. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa. 
or Elasah, the son of Shaphan or Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, here's what's happening. The letter is apparently being carried by diplomatic mail. Why is that important? Because there's still diplomatic relations. Judah and Jerusalem have a semi kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Puppet government in place. There's a puppet government in, in place and Zedekiah's loyalty is in question. So Zedekiah is sending some special correspondence to King Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine, if you will, that there is an entourage of envoys that come from Babylon to Jerusalem. They conduct business and then that entourage is going to leave Jerusalem and go back to Babylon. During the course of that transaction, Jeremiah is going to send letters to the men and women who have been taken captive and who already find themselves in Babylon. So there's a special correspondence that's taking place. We don't know what Zedekiah is writing about. We don't know if he's declaring his loyalty. We don't know if this is about an annual tribute or taxes. All we know is that the envoys carrying the mail were named Elsa and Gamaria. But look at that. Elsa was the son of Shaphan, which means that he was probably either the brother or the son of Ahiakim. Now, again, if you're not a detective and you haven't been following along in the story, you maybe have forgotten that Ahiakim was the guy who supported Jeremiah at his trial as he faced charges of committing treason against the nation. And Ahiakim is the one who sort of saved his kosher bacon, so to speak, when he was getting ready to be tossed in the slammer. This is the guy who advocated him and gave him 11 more years to be able to preach and teach the gospel, if you will, or to declare the word of the Lord as he faced charges of treason against the nation. And if you forgot about it, it's in Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 24. So apparently his brother or son is one of the envoys who are carrying the letter of Jeremiah. Now, why is this important? Because Jeremiah has friends in high places and high governmental positions. And why else is this important? Because the word of the Lord was important and the letter of encouragement was important. These people were in trouble and they were in pain and their lives were in big trouble. And if they ever needed a word of hope, it was now. And so it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want you to note right away the source of encouragement. It's God himself. Jeremiah is the prophet and he is writing the letter. But make no mistake about it. The word is from God. It's from the mind of God and the heart of God concerning the plan of God. Again, why is this important to you? It's important to you because every time you open up the Bible, 
And every time you read in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're reading the letters of the apostles. You're reading the letter of Paul. You're reading the correspondence that's taking place. You're reading the word of God. You're you're reading the plan of God and the purposes of God and the promises of God. And so the Lord begins by reminding them that tragedy can become triumph. And it is a tragedy. In rebellion and disobedience, because they refuse to listen to God, they refuse to abandon idolatry, they refuse to listen to the word of God. There has been a catastrophe. Jerusalem has been taken. They've been taken captives. They've been transported. Now, again, you're probably nothing like me. You probably always do things right. You probably never make mistakes. You probably never sin. You probably are never disobedient to God. But sometimes we are. And sometimes there's terrible, horrible things that happen because of rebellion and disobedience. I think you know that you can't unsin. That once the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, that once you've already done something wicked or wrong, once you've already taken the drugs, once you've already been arrested, once you've already had that relationship with the person that you had no business having the relationship, you can't undo it. All you can do is go forward. You might live in regret. You might live in agony. You might live thinking, oh, I wish to God I had never done that. I wish to God I had never said that. I wish to God that that had never happened. But guess what? It did happen. And now what? What do you do once you've sinned? And the right answer is, in brokenness and humility, you cry out to God and you confess your sin, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from, on, from all unrighteousness and a willingness to turn and go in a different direction. The Lord himself has allowed the people to be carried away into captivity. Read it for yourself in the text. They may blame Nebuchadnezzar and they may blame Babylon and they may blame the army and they may blame these people and those people and these circumstances and those circumstances. But make no mistake about it. If you are a child of God under the plan of God, guess what? God is in control of your life. And he opens doors. And he closes doors. Nebuchadnezzar was the agent in God's hand to execute justice and judgment. And so, again, I want you to think about this. In one sense, God himself is sending them the note. Just like God sometimes will send you a note. It may come in the form of your pastor. It may come in the form of your husband. It may come in the form of your wife. It may come in the form of a Bible teacher. It might come on a radio or a television show. But all of a sudden, someone starts to speak. And you begin to understand that God is trying to speak to you. These people had lost their home. They had lost their property. They had lost their wealth. Some of them had lost their family. In some cases, husbands and wives and children. And now they've lost their freedom. And they're captive in a foreign land. Just like some people listening right now to me. 
you're listening here in the sanctuary. But eventually it'll go out on tape and it'll go out on the radio and people will be hearing this in Sterling and in Can Canyon City and Jeffco Jail and the Arapahoe County Jail. There, there will be a message and they will find themselves surrounded by cement and steel and they will be in a place where they've lost their freedom. Perhaps they suffered in battle. Maybe they were abused by their conquerors. They're gripped with a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And they need to hear from God. They need to hear a message of hope. And so the Lord's going to give them a series of special instructions. Things have been bad. But I need you to understand something the Lord is going to say. I want you to build homes and plant gardens in verse 5. I want you to marry. I want you to start families. I want you to have children so that your numbers will grow in verse 6. Unknown to the people, God was planning to restore their nation and in a future day. And in number 3, they were to seek peace and prosperity in their difficult circumstances in Babylon. It says in verse 7, these people are more likely to experience peace and, and tranquility if they actually cooperate with the plan of God. God in verse 7, the people were far more likely to experience peace and prosperity and even freedom if they didn't cause civil disorder, if they didn't rise up against their conquerors, they were supposed to pray for their unbelieving captors. The message, there's a future even though you don't know about the future. Because God has a plan and a purpose, an unfinished business. He is, after 70 years, going to bring these people back and they're going to form the nucleus of the promises for the future. And even though you might be going through a difficult time, and some of you can look back on the past and you can remember those lonely moments and those lonely nights. You can remember even for some of you those suicidal moments where the darkness came crashing in on you and you couldn't even imagine what it would be like to live one more day because you were so bitter and so broken and so hurt and so empty and a voice whispered inside of you and said I have a different plan for you and I have a different purpose for you and I have a different future for you but I need you to trust me and I need you to believe me and that's part of the point he says in verse 5, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Why? Because there were false prophets who were saying your captivity is going to soon come to an end. And the Lord, through Jeremiah, is saying, no, your captivity is going to continue. So I need you to make the best of it. I need you to understand that this new home that I have for you is going to take a while. Take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. In verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. The principle, the principle is, guess what? Try to live in the circumstances that you find yourself in. Without bitterness and without drama. 
Find yourself in a, in a situation and try to make the best of it. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. The idea being, I don't want to be here. I wasn't, this wasn't supposed to be my life. I wasn't supposed to be taken captive. I wasn't supposed to be hauled off to Babylon. And if I am taken captive, and if I am hauled off to Babylon, it's not supposed to last a lifetime. And see, for some, it might sound a little bit hopeless. For some, it might sound, you mean I'm not going to experience blessing because of my disobedience? Maybe, but guess what? Your children or their children will experience blessing. How can I undo the wrong that's been done? I may not be able to undo the wrong that has been done, but you can be faithful and you can serve your family and they can serve their family knowing, knowing that a future is unfolding where God is in charge. The false prophets were teaching a false and a deceptive message. In verse 8 it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dream which you caused to be dreamed. The false prophets were preaching a false message that they would return, and it wasn't going to happen. And this was the same false message being preached in Jerusalem. So the false message is in Jerusalem. The false message is in Babylon. And so it was easy to be manipulated. In verse 9, it says, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I haven't sent them, says the Lord. The problem, the false prophets were giving false hopes. But God gives real hope, true hope. Here's part of the message. Are things bad? Yes. Is this the time to lose hope? No. The people must not lose hope. Why shouldn't I lose hope? God understands your, your plight and your circumstances. God knows about the loss and God knows about the suffering. What else does God know? The ultimate plan. Okay, I'm ready. Tell me. Do you think God's going to always tell you what tomorrow holds or day after tomorrow? Here's what the Bible says, whether you like it or not. The just shall live by faith. There's only one way to please God. You have to believe that he is. You have to believe that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to walk by faith. I want to walk by knowing that the check is in the mail. I want to know that... The mortgage is going to be paid. I want to know that the bills are going to be paid. I want to know that my children are going to be taken care of. But here's part of the point. God understands their circumstances. He knows about loss and suffering. He understands the ultimate plan. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because the ultimate plan includes pouring out his mercy and pouring out his grace and pouring out his blessing for everyone. Who loves him and trusts him 
And there's a series of four promises that are given. Number one, the Lord's going to restore the nation and bring his people back from the land in verse 10. But the return isn't going to take place for 70 years since it would take time because it was important for the people to adjust to their new circumstances. And so he basically says, I need you to build homes and establish a life. Here's part of the point. In those instructions, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, marry, start families, increase your numbers. They needed to do all of this so that they can contribute to the peace and prosperity of the new environment. Although most of them would die in Babylon, there would be a future generation that would return. Number two. The ultimate plan of God was for peace and prosperity and not for harm. God will offer a bright future and a certain hope if the people will trust him. He will deliver them from Babylon. And by the way, there is no greater hope and there is no greater future than the one that's promised by God. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What is the greatest hope? The promise that God provides for you. What is the greatest future? The one that God has planned for you. And number three, the Lord will promise to hear their prayers of the people in verses 12 through 13. But first, the people would have to seek them with their whole heart. And I need you to understand something. Because I'm going to tell you something that they didn't get told right from the start. They have to remain in Babylon. Why? Because God's discipline needed time to work. Why? Because there was going to come a point where they would sincerely cry out to God for their deliverance. Why? Because God's plan and purpose included a brokenness and a humiliation and a submission that would only come through time. And if the people were allowed to return too soon, their hearts would remain hard. Their attitude would remain stubborn. The people would still scheme and they would still trust their own power and they would trust their own resources and they would trust their own intuition and they would trust their own ingenuity to deliver them just like you. God, why are you taking so long? You have no idea how hard your heart is. God, why are you taking so long? Because brokenness and humility aren't a part of your life yet. Why are you taking so long? Because you're stubbornly refusing to trust me and you continue to trust yourself. And you still have a plan and you still have a scheme and you still have... A willingness not to trust me, but to trust yourself. I can fix this. I can make this right. I can fix this this circumstance. I can fix this. I can make it go away. God would use the Babylonian captivity to break his people and in their suffering and distress, they would beg God to rescue them and save them and recommit their lives to him. They would turn from their wickedness. They would return. They would turn from their false gods. They would actually begin to dedicate themselves to the Lord and obey his word. So what about you? What will it take? What disaster What catastrophe 
What will it take for you to finally say, okay, God, I don't want to have to come to that. I want to trust you now. I want to serve you now. I want to obey you now. I don't want a catastrophe to have to occur. In verse 10, look what it says. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return this place. How about 50? Lord, how about 40? How about 30? Why not 20? Lord, I'm in a difficult situation. I need to know what you really think. Verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. The theologian will say, the exegetical application of this is to the captives in Babylon. True. What about the principle? Is there a principle here for you? What are the thoughts that God thinks towards you? Does this text provide a principle and does this text point us to other texts in the New Testament concerning the mind of God and the heart of Jesus concerning you? What is the heart of Jesus concerning you? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God loves you and that Jesus loves you and that the plans that God has for you are thoughts of peace. How do you know? Because this is what the Bible says, turn, turn, turn. The implication is that you can. The, the Bible says over and over again, you can turn from whatever course of action that you contemplated. And look what it says, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Remember, this isn't just simply the absence of conflict, but this is the restoration of a broken relationship, not of evil. God, you just want to hurt me. You just want to punish me. You just want to discipline me. I got to tell you something. You may think that discipline is evil, but it isn't. How many of you are parents? Many of you. How many of you know that as parents, sometimes you have to hurt your child in order to help your child? Some of you do. My son, Jonathan, who was playing up here when he was a young man, he was bouncing up and down on the bed. He's quite the athlete. And there was a point where he bounced off the bed and right onto the corner of the bed stand and he he sp split his head open. So we had to take him, get his head sewn up. A few years later, he has incessant headaches. And we couldn't figure out why the headaches kept coming. And the doctor said that there was a spinal fluid building up in his spinal column. And that unless we relieved the pressure from the spinal fluid, he could be in very serious trouble. And I don't know if you've ever seen a spinal tap. Or you've ever had one. But it is maybe the most unpleasant thing that you can ever imagine. And I remember holding his head in my hands and saying, look at me, look at your dad, look at me, look at your dad. You're going to be able to get through this. 
But when the, when the needle, the big, thick needle was going into his spinal column and into the, that area that contains the spinal fluid, and I saw the syringe begin to fill with the, the, the milky substance of his, of his spinal fluid, I knew that there was a reason why we had to hurt him so bad. It was because this was the only thing that was going to relieve the pressure and save his life. It might come as a shock and as a surprise to some of you that I would much rather visit you in the hospital than come and claim your body at the morgue. And so, what are the thoughts that he has towards you? They're of peace, not of evil. Not to take away your future, but to give you a future. You know, it's been said that a person can live without food for 30 days and a person can live without water for four days and a person can live without air for about five minutes but a person can't live without hope for just a few seconds once hope is gone there is no reason to continue to live so what does god really think about the men and women in captivity he's laying it out And for the children of Israel, the captivity is in Babylon. But for some of you, it might be in a perpetual cycle of addiction that you have entered into. But look what the Bible says. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. In Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus said men ought always to pray. He says, then you will call upon me. But the implication is that you will call upon me and pray to me in such a way that he would be willing to listen to you because yours isn't mixed motives. Yours isn't a manipulative motive. Yours isn't to make a deal with God. Look what it says in verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7? Ask, seek, knock. The Bible says, ask and it will be given to you in Matthew 7, 7. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But look what it says. You will seek me and find me when you search with me with half of your heart. Is that what it says? With three quarters of your heart. 98, you've got 98% of the heart. Okay, I'm going to squeeze out 99% of the heart. But what does the Bible say? When you seek me with all your heart. The implication seems to be no reservations left. No negotiations are left. No deals are left. No promises are left. James Denny said, the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. You know, what's interesting to me. People, as you can imagine, often come to me and they ask me for help. And they'll say, I'm desperate. And I'll smile. Why are you smiling at me? Why are you mocking my situation? I'm not smiling at you and I'm not mocking your, your situation. I know that you have characterized your, your circumstances as desperate. But there seems to me 
to be plans and schemes and lies that are left. But make no mistake about it. When the plans are gone and the schemes are gone and the manipulations are gone and all that you have left is a singular desire to seek the Lord, he will respond. Julian of Norwich was a woman who lived in the late 1300s. According to some English scholars, she's the first woman who ever wrote a book in the English language. She had a series of visions of Jesus after a very profound illness. She was a mystic whose writings influenced people like A.W. Tozier. She wrote, seeking with faith, seeking with hope, seeking with love, pleases our Lord and finding him pleases the soul, filling it full of joy. And so I learned that as long as God allows us to struggle on this earth, seeking is as good as seeing. There is a time when seeking is as good as seeing. When seeking means I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking for the answer. I'm looking to see what God wants. In verse 14, it says, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. For the children of Israel and the people in Babylon and the Jews who were scattered, God's promise was, I'm going to bring you back from the nations where I placed you and I'm going to plant you back in the land so that the plans of God and the purposes of God will be fulfilled. Before I ever became a Christian, I read the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. It was required reading in high school. And there was a quote that I'll never forget. It said, seeking means to have a goal. But finding means to be free. And guess what? Remember what Jesus said? Those who have a right relationship with him will be free indeed. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, wrote, there are three kinds of people in the world. Italian people and those who wish. No, he didn't say that. There are three kinds of people in the world. Those who have sought God and found him and now serve him. Those who are seeking him but have not yet found him. And those who neither seek him nor find him. The first are reasonable and happy. The second are reasonable and unhappy. The third are unreasonable and unhappy. Which are you? Which one are you? Do you fall into the category of the person who has sought God and found him and now serves him? Are are you that person who's looking for him, but you haven't found him? Are you the person who's not even looking? So the chances are you'll never find him. Spurgeon wrote, Seek the true faith by all manner of means, but do not spend a whole life in finding it, lest you be like the workman who wastes the whole day in looking for his tools. Can you imagine? You spend your whole day on a project, gathering the tools together, but the truth is the day is now gone and the project can never be done. Thomas Akempis said, if you seek the Lord Jesus in all things, 
you will truly find him. But if you seek yourself, you'll find yourself. And that will be your great loss. Has anyone ever said to you, I think I need to go find myself. And you could say, you're right here. Ta-da! Here you are. Do I get some sort of reward? What do they mean when they say, I'm trying to find myself? For most people who say, I'm trying to find myself, they're trying to find a reason to continue their rebellion, and they're trying to find a reason to continue their disobedience, and they're they're trying to find a reason to continue whatever estrangement that they're experiencing from God. You'll rarely hear the person say, I am trying to determine what it is that God wants from me. Make no mistake about it. You can always honestly say, I'll, I'll tell you something. If you pursue Jesus, you will find what you need. How are we to think about our circumstance? No matter how bad or bleak, no matter the misfortune, we stand strong for Jesus. We serve the Lord. We bear witness to his goodness and his love. We sin. We make mistakes. We experience difficult circumstances. But if we turn to the Lord in repentance and renewed commitment, he will eventually deliver us from the crushing weight Of our disobedience. But some people give up hope so quickly. I grew up in a world where, you know, you you, what what are the name of those twins who are really, really famous? The little girls who are. Yeah, the, the, the Olsen twins. Before the Olsen twins, there was a person more popular than both twins. Her name was Shirley Temple. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you know about Shirley Temple. But she was totally famous. She was like off the charts megastar. And as an adult, she was asked, when did you stop believing in Santa Claus? And she said, I stopped believing in Santa Claus when my mom took me to the department store and Santa asked for my autograph. Oh, yeah, that will, all the magic will disappear at that point. When do people stop believing in God and stop trusting God and stop honoring God? At what point do they say, you know, I went to church and I read the Bible and I did all of the things that the Bible said. And all I got was hurt. All I got was disappointed. All I got was left behind. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. The thoughts that he has towards you aren't to leave you out in the lurch. He writes a second letter in verses 15 through 23. Jeremiah sends out the second letter. It's a warning not to trust the false prophets. In verse 15, we have a new letter. It says, because you said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. In other words, they've been gone long enough and they're starting to have a hierarchy of leadership there in Babylon. And sure enough, people are, 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 are claiming to be able to speak for God. In verse 16, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell 
dwell in this city and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity. Here's the second letter. He's saying, I'm giving you news from home. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten there so bad. Here's part of the point. We're in Babylon and we're getting ready to die. I know you're in Babylon and it feels like you're getting ready to die. But God has a plan for you and a purpose for you and a future for you. I wish I was back in Jerusalem. No, you don't. Because the people who remain in Jerusalem, who continue in rebellion and disobedience against God, they don't have that promise. They don't have the same promise that you have. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because you might think that being in Babylon is the very worst thing that could ever happen to you. And you might think that being in Jerusalem is the best place that you could possibly be. But make no mistake about it. The worst place that you will ever be is outside of the will of God. And the best place that you will ever be is smack dab in the middle of the will of God. It's okay for you to ask at this point, well, what is the will of God? You should be asking that question. You should be praying and saying, Lord, am I in the center of your will and in the center of your circumstances? For the people who have remained behind, it says, I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and I will deliver them to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse. That doesn't sound good. An astonishment. Not good. A hissing. Not good. A reproach. The people would become the object of cursing, horror, contempt, mockery. And sadly, the mistreatment by the Jews has continued in almost every age. Because they have heeded my word, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. Neither would you heed, says the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of the captivity. Who is he speaking to? The captivity who are in Babylon, whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. What? Yeah, I sent you there. I placed my hand upon you and I sent you into the circumstances that you're facing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah and Zedekiah, the son of Naziah, who prophesy a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. In other words, there were false prophets who were in Babylon and they were speaking lies to the people. The people would see, look what it says in the text, with their own eyes. Why is that important? No one will be allowed to say that they didn't see with their own eyes the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. In other words, remember, the true prophet has the responsibility that what he says is going to come to pass. And so Jeremiah sends this letter. And the letter is a letter of condemnation for the false prophets. Verse 22. And because of them, a curse shall be taken up all the captivity of Judah who are in Babylon, saying, the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Here's the idea. It would seem that Zedekiah and Ahab became 
infamous figures. In other words, it was so obvious to, to everybody what had happened to him. Let me give you an example in the modern world. During the Iraq War, the forces of the United States Army went into Baghdad, and then we went into Iraq, and we found Saddam Hussein. One of our soldiers found him in a spider hole, crawled into the hole, and drug him out of the hole like the rat and the vermin that he is. He went through a process, and then they hung him by the neck until he was dead. Now, I don't know if you saw it on YouTube, but I don't need to see a show of hands. But how many of you are at least aware that Saddam Hussein hung by the neck until he was dead? Only a few of you. I'm shocked and surprised. It's because some people become infamous because of what happens to them. They do something weird, they do something wicked, and they have to pay the price. There's only a couple of people in here old enough to actually have remembered Bonnie and Clyde. But there was a famous group of people in the 1930s who went throughout the Midwest, Robin Banks. Some of you have, may have seen the remake with Warren Beatty and What's-Her-Name and Bonnie and Clyde. Some of you remember the song... You know, about the legend of Bonnie and Clyde. But th that's the idea. People began to sing. If they had movies in ancient Babylon, they would have made a story about Zedekiah and Ahab. They would go, you, you, guess who's going to play Zedekiah and Ahab in the made-for-TV movie version? Because you're going to get what's coming to you. The idea is that everybody knew what happened to him. Because Jeremiah's prophecy would come to pass. In verse 23 it says, because they have done disgraceful things in Israel... They've committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. They've spoken lies, it says in verse 23, and my name, which I have not commanded them. Indeed, I know and am a witness, says the Lord. I want you to pause for just a moment and think about a couple of things. The letter of Jeremiah was powerful and timely. In other words, in their captivity, it comes at exactly the right time, and it seems to read their minds and describe their circumstances. They're alone and hurt and wondering about their future. And the word of God is powerful and sharp. The word of God answers questions, but it also will sometimes tell us the hard Truth that we must embrace. For the people in Babylon, here's the truth. You're going to be there for a while. But God loves you. And he's thinking about you. He has a plan and a purpose for you. For them, it's going to be 70 years. I don't know how long it's going to be for you. You might find yourself in a dark place, in an empty place, in a difficult place. But know this. When you open up your Bible and you begin to read it, 
and you look at the plan of God and the purposes of God and the provision of God and the promises of God and you begin to say, Lord, I don't know everything about everything, but I do know this. I know that you love me and that you have a plan for me and you've made promises to me. And whatever weirdness and whatever wickedness that I've been involved in, I don't want to be involved in it anymore. I can't undo the things that I've done in the past, but I can wake up tomorrow morning. And I can pray. I can wake up tomorrow morning and to begin and open up my Bible and say, Lord, I'm going to do the things that I've always promised to do, but I failed to do. I'm going to spend time with you and I'm going to meet with you in the morning or in the evening, whatever works for you. I'm going to begin to make friendship and fellowship with you a priority of my life and I'm going to make hearing from you a priority of of my life and I'm going to make listening to what you have to say a priority of my life and I'm going to make determining your will a priority in my life and I'm going to be I'm going to make discovering my gifts and callings a priority in my life and I guarantee you that things will change the dark cloud will lift The emptiness will become fullness. The depression will become joy. There's more letters in the passage. But we'll finish those next week. We're going to have communion in just a few moments. But I want you to think about the passage. Here in Jeremiah chapter 29. I want you to go to verse 11. I want you to think about the passage that says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And I will listen to you. But there's a condition. Look what it says in verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Look what it says in verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And in verse 14 it says, I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from the captivity. Immediate context. The children of Israel are going to have an awakening and they're going to return. What this means to you, when you seek the Lord with all of your heart, Jesus will show up. Jesus will show up as Lord, Master, Provider, Creator, Sustainer. He will become everything that you need in order to satisfy every provision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would prepare prepare our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we begin to have communion, that, Lord, we begin to think on the thing that the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Lord, we remember what Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not the peace that this world gives That in this world we'll have tribulation. 
but be of good cheer that I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, Jesus has given us peace with you and peace from you and peace through you. The reconciliation of a broken relationship, forgiveness and hope, peace with you, Lord. We're not at war anymore. We can lay down our arms. We, we don't have to continue the fight or the battle. We don't have to resist you and rebel against you anymore. We can just simply submit to you. And so, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what would happen. That, Lord, we would run into your arms. That we would embrace you and trust you. That, Lord, even though there might be difficulties and discipline still ahead. That in the end, we know that you're going to do exactly what needs to be done to bring us to a place of humility and submission to you. And we pray that our children and our grandchildren never have to experience what we experienced. Lord, we pray that they would live a life of joy and peace and submission. Of transformation and usefulness. Lord, maybe this will be the generation that will set its mind on the things above. And if we are that generation, Lord, maybe we have a chance to begin to explore and understand exactly what love is all about. Prepare our hearts for communion, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.